For the week of October 29th, 2023, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 636, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. Yeah, in Los Angeles, but you were in New York and in Birmingham, Alabama, but I was in New York. I'm Michael Giltz. Hello, Michael. How are you? I know that, uh, by the way, Daniel and a- Andrew, they say hello. They, they miss you. They, 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 uh, Not as much as I miss them. Of, of course, you know, now we're all on first name basis. I was, yes, because you sat in a theater. They now love us. I was in New York to see the revival of Merrily We Roll Along. And a few days later, Sperling was in New York to see the revival of Merrily We Roll Along. Speaking of Daniel Radcliffe, uh, the Broadway show Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, uh, it just set the longest, set the record for the longest running show in the history of the lyric which is not saying a lot here in New York because the lyric's been open for like 25 years. However, it is, <laughs> it, it's not a long time in Broadway history, but in about 10 days time, it will become the longest running play to debut on Broadway in more than 40 years. And after another year or so, it will be the longest running play to debut on Broadway in 60 years. It's at 1,500, approaching 1,600 performances. That's amazing run for a straight play it's, 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 you know, it's already 40 years is how long it's going to have been since we've had a, a show this big of a hit. You have to go back to Death Trap and Gemini in the late 70s uh, to find shows that ran almost, you know, all, that ran longer than it. And they're only like one year away. So it will pass them as well. So Harry Potter and the Cursed Child is doing great. And we both saw Marilyn We Roll Along and I thought Daniel did great. I thought the show was very good. What did you think? I thought it was very good. I mean, I was prepared to, I mean, let's face it. This is a show that when it opened in 1981, it opened and closed after 16 performances. Now it's been reworked since then. Uh, but, you know, many Stephen times. Sondheim, many times, yes. Um, and it's, I thought it was really, really good. And I thought, uh, you know, you know uh, Daniel Radcliffe and uh, why am I forgetting? J- Jonathan Groff. Wow, I couldn't believe it. And Lydia Mendoza. Uh, yeah, uh, I did not see her. She was not there. Oh, that the night I saw. That's not, that's not good. Uh, well, I uh, I hope that woman you saw with the understudy. They're usually great. I hope she did well. Um, but I saw all three leads. I thought they were terrific. I didn't think the show was perfect. There were a few things I thought, why didn't they fix this over the last forty years? Well, they've they've been working on it again. I mean, it was revived in the nineties off Broadway. It was revived in the two thousands uh, to varying levels of success. But they really cracked the code this time. It's a terrific revival. It's well worth seeing. It's the hottest show in town. It's sold out. Uh, very high ticket prices, unfortunately, but I, I broke the bank to go see it, and I'm glad I did. There were things I didn't like. The set is not great. It's kind of generic and bland and never seems to change much, even though there's all these different settings. Some of the minor performances weren't great. There were two people I didn't love, though Roger Reese, who's a, the husband of an actress, is, is terrific. And the three leads that I saw were just terrific and really definitely makes the case for the show. So I was very glad I saw it, that's for sure. Now, now here's a little bit of trivia for you. Who played that role, the role that Roger Reese plays? Joe Johnson, I think, is the, is the name of the... Uh, My answer is I have no idea. <laughs> Jason Alexander in the original Broadway production. Okay, sure. He's a Broadway Pre-Seinfeld. actor. Pre-Seinfeld. Sure, he was a Broadway, you know, not a, not a big star, but he was a, a, you know, a talent. Yeah. 
There's a great documentary about the making of Merrily We Roll Along. I recommend it. If you're in New York, I was at the Whitney and saw some great stuff. I thought one of the exhibits was a permanent exhibit. It's an outdoor sculpture piece by Rose B. Simpson, but it's not. It's on the roof, and uh, that's great. It's a shame that won't be permanent. So if you get to the Whitney, make sure you head to one of the outdoor roof areas where you can look at some more installations. There's a cool one that's like a reflective thing that you can walk through. It's called the portal. And then there's the sculptures by Rose B. Simpson. So those are all worth seeing. You also saw Gutenberg, the musical, which I did not see. And you thought that was fun. I thought it was fun. Again, I, I you know, you said it I, when we, we first mentioned it on on this program. You said, oh, well, that's not a very hard-hitting Pete. You're right. It's not. It's it's fluff. Oh, I, not I, I didn't say that. Before. I just haven't seen it. I'm surprised it's doing well commercially. I have not oh, seen the show. It's a comedy. I like comedies. I don't need every show to be serious, but you said it was fun. Yeah, it was fun. You know, Josh Gad, Andrew Reynolds, uh, it, it's fun to a point where, you know, it's a two-hander and they have all these characters that are represented by the hats that they wear and they have all these baseball caps with, with words on them and they take them on and off and uh, that, was, that was kind of fun. Well, cool. Well, I'm stuck back in Birmingham again watching streaming stuff and people watch me at uh, Panera where I work every night after I'm done taking care of my mom. And one of the employees was like, oh, you're watching One Piece. He was all excited that I was watching One Piece. He hadn't watched it yet. He watched the anime version, but he'd never, he hadn't started watching the Netflix where I was like, yeah, you know, it's, it's pretty good. It's optimal. I haven't really seen the anime version, but turns out he binged on it and he was very excited. And he's like, oh, when's the new season coming out? I'm like, no, 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 they haven't even, that's a long ways away. They just finished this one. And so then last week he comes out to me, he says, I already, I saw a trailer for season two. It says it's coming soon. Are you sure? I go, what? And I'm looking up. I'm like, no, no, they, the actor strike is on. They haven't even begun filming this season. They're hoping it will happen before Singapore summer passes because then there's a lot more rain and stuff to deal with. That's where they shot the show originally. That's where they're doing season. I go, they haven't even be finished casting. I mean, this is not, this is a year and a half away. And, and I thought, why would they have a trailer? And I went online and Netflix does have a trailer for One Piece season two. And it's mostly footage from season one cut in a different way. And at the end, it says, uh, coming soon. I guess they just want to reassure all the people who loved it that, like, don't worry, there will be more. But coming soon in 2025? <laughs> you yeah. know, this is, 2025. This is a long when, way. When everything else you'd like will actually show up. 2025. Yes, the, <laughs> thanks to the strike. So we'll talk about the strike. But what else are we going to talk about this week? Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, it's a short episode. Well, short. No, it's not. We think not anymore. We, we were we were going to make it short, but that we threw that by the wayside. Well, we've been off for two weeks, but everyone's holding their breath right now. In fact, waiting for the actor strike to end, and weirdly, not a lot has happened. So we'll discuss box office and Taylor Swift's latest triumph on the music charts, and the latest on the strike. On Inside Baseball, we'll look at Netflix uh, embracing ads and price increases, the two things it's embracing. Apparently, the, the thing that it never said it would embrace, ads, and the thing that uh, is the only thing that they can do to get people to watch the ads, raise the prices so that they take the ad tier. Uh, also, the Comcast <laughs> battle with Disney may have, you know, other channels, they may make other has, uh, channels hesitate before playing hardball with traditional TV bundlers. We'll explain what that means. And maybe the future of streaming looks a lot like Hulu. Oh, and some people died, by the way, as usual. Yes, yes. Of course, yeah, I don't know why. The obituary section, good grief. Okay, of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. 
But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on last week's box office. <laughs> All right, we're looking at box office around the world, and we'll have two big points to make about the box office. One looking at the overall year and how it's doing compared to previous years and why, and the other one focusing in on the Chinese market. But we pull information from Comscore and all our other sources all around the world. Uh, has Comscore updated their online site yet? I'll um, find for, out. One, for one, one, well into Monday, they had not updated their website. They had sent out their newsletter information to subscribers and people who pay for access. Normally, the website is updated Sunday afternoon, but it wasn't updated at all as of Monday, late Monday. So, Hopefully that's been fixed. But anyway, we do pull info from Comscore. We have a link in our show notes. And for the worldwide box office for the entire week, the number one movie around the world is the video game turned film Five Nights at Freddy's. It made $130 million in its worldwide debut. Here in North America, it is the biggest op movie to open on the Halloween weekend in history. It is the, I believe, the second biggest or just about the biggest movie to debut day and day in both theaters. I think there was a Marvel movie that did a little bit bigger, but it's one of the biggest ever to debut no, no, in tied, movie theaters. It, it, it tied Black Widow. That's what it did. It, it did tie. Ultimately, it tied Something Black like Widow that, after yeah. we got the Monday actuals. Um, yes. Yeah, so day and date on Peacock, and yet it still made a ton of money here in North America. It made about $80 million. This is a... Talk about how clueless we are about video games. This is way off my radar. It was a crowdfunded video game. It wasn't even a big player. It was a crowdfunded video game from a guy who used to do like Christian themed stuff. And then he switched to this video game and it's got books, it's got music, it's got all this ancillary stuff going on and Blumhouse figured out how to turn it into a movie. It's a fairly friendly movie. It's a PG-13 movie, so it's not a horror grisly fest. The critics hated the movie, but audiences really liked it. And so it's, you know, it'll drop next weekend, but not as badly as you might expect, given the horrible reviews. So Five Night at Freddy's, $130 million worldwide, a big success story. And does this argue sprawling? It doesn't matter. You can put stuff on day and date on a streamer. Nobody, people will still turn up at the theater. Yeah, well, you should definitely put it on a streamer that nobody has. Because nobody no. I know well, has it. <laughs> or or well, they Peacock, do. They're like, I have it? I didn't know I had Peacock. I, I have tw I, Peacock has 28 million subscribers. I am one of them. That's small compared to Disney Plus and Netflix. So, of course, that means it's not as likely to damage box office. So, yeah, everybody was arguing, sure, when you're only in 30 million homes, which sounds like a lot to me. That's 10% of the people in the country, practically, or like 8% of all people in the country have Peacock. They have access to it. So, that's not that tiny you know one out of ten people but maybe those are older people and the young people who want to see a horror flick and of course like comedies and all movies really most movies are more fun in a crowded theater than they are at home certainly that's the case for a horror film but it worked just hollywood don't think day and date is a good idea at number two around the world is Killers of the Flower Moon, another $44 million this week. So that's a good hold. It made about $44 million last week. Now it's at $88 million worldwide. It will be coming to Apple, but there's no announced date. Uh, in fact, I had uh, the baker at my Panera. It's all about Panera today. I wish they were, you know, sponsor the show. The baker at Panera, Lee, was like, I'm going home tonight to watch Killers of the Flower Moon. I'm like... Is it on Apple yet? And he goes, yeah, yeah, it's on Apple. I go, oh, I didn't 
I, you know, I guess it's been out a week. I guess they put on an apple. I didn't realize, but I looked up. I'm like, no, it's not an apple yet, but he thought it would be and assumed it would be. He knew where it was coming. He subscribes to Apple. They keep pushing and promoting it. So he's aware of it. And he kind of expected it to be on Apple. He's not angry, but he's like, oh, I thought it'd be on there already. He thought, the way they market, I thought it was already on. So you people are very aware. And of course, for a three and a half hour film, that's maybe a film that people say, you know what? I think I'll wait till it's at home where I can watch it over two nights. <laughs> right. Well, and it, this is a movie that Apple will not make any money on, at least in theaters. Uh, it's well, the they will make money. They will not. They will not make it into. They will not make all their money back, but they will certainly right. make money. They've made grossed eighty-eight million dollars worldwide, so they've made about thirty-five million dollars, forty million dollars. Yeah. Well, maybe, and, but yeah, but then they, of course, they had to give you know. No, well, I'm not just you saying they didn't make money. They have made money. They have not made turned a profit yet on their $200 million investment. Correct. Yeah, we don't want them to think it's no point in releasing it theatrically. There is. If they make $100 million theatrically, that's $100 million more, plus a lot of marketing. That means when it does come to Apple+, Plus, people will be very aware of it. So giving it a theatrical run, having an Oscar campaign, all helps that movie become more valuable once it comes to Apple. And if you're going to spend $200 million on a movie, you might as well defray the cost by getting $100 million back by putting it into theaters. There's only one person on earth that I know personally who has said that putting a movie in theaters does not help it on a streaming service. Do you know who that is? Uh, the head of, of Netflix? Ted Sarandos. You're right. Very good. Yes, Ted Sarandos. He's the only person who has said, yeah, no, they right. don't perform any better on, uh, you know, those, the, those streaming yeah, that's movies. that's absurd. Yeah, I'm like, uh-huh. He's, he's not in the business of making theatrical films. That's fine. But, you know, there's a, a good argument to be made. Anyway, I, I asked him to show uh, me the proof of that. And you know what he said? Uh, yeah, just take my word for it. Yeah, because they don't show anybody anything. So right. it's a very long movie. And what happened in theaters... Intermission. Yeah, Couple theaters no, I said, think, hey, let's bring back the intermission. And Marty is not pleased. Yeah, well, because it wasn't cut that way. And I think if he had actually cut it that way, he wouldn't mind. But he said, hey. Well, this of is course, if he had wanted an per- intermission, there would be an intermission. Well, do you think that certain films should have intermissions? No, not, not typically. Very rarely does a movie benefit from having a break? I don't even think most Broadway shows should have intermissions. 90% of the time, it's not called for. It's not appropriate dramatically. And it kind of weakens the show because you got to gear back up again for act two. There are some musicals where they have a big act one end. It's a logical, natural break. It's a three-hour show. You get it. But most of the time, no, I don't think so. But if it's really long or there's some really natural break, then sure. You know what? If they put Dune 1 and Part 2 together and show them in a theater, that would be like one movie, beginning, middle, and end, where there was a natural break. <laughs> you know? So yeah, Dune Part 1 ends, you get to go to the bathroom. So anyway, Five Nights at Freddy's made $130 million. Killers of the Flower Moon made $44 million. And Taylor Swift, killing it on the record charts and the movie charts, Killer, uh, Taylor Swift, the Eras Tour, made another $24 million. You know what $24 million would be? Amazing final total for a concert film. That would make you one of the 10 biggest concert films of all time. But in fact, she's made $203 million worldwide, and she has her eyes set on passing see Michael Jackson's concert film and making at least $262 million so she can take the crown or perhaps it's a tiara. Anyway, Do you think that this film will actually reach that? I am kind of... 
It's at $200 million. It only needs another $60 million, $59 million. It just made $24 million this week. And you know what? Next spring, she'll say, let's put it out again with some bonus footage. Come again, gals. Let's have fun. Trust me. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Trolls Band Together, the animated film, another $20 million this week, opening in other territories around the world. It's at $36 million total. Another animated film, Paul Patrol, the Mighty Movie, now the highest grossing film in that franchise. That's at $166 million worldwide. Now we come to China. Only the River Flows is a Chinese murder drama. It made $18 million this week. It's at $31 million and counting. Uh, back to America, mostly, Saw 10 or Saw X, the latest in the horror film, that made about $14 million. The Exorcist Believer made $12 million. Uh, we assume these movies will fall off a cliff the day Halloween ends, but we'll have to wait and see. In India, Leo Buddy Sweet, Bloody Sweet, I should say, uh, that Tamil film is playing all over the world, including here in the U.S. It made another $12 million. It's at $61 million and counting. Uh, director Yimu Zhang, his film Under the Light. Uh, I can't wait to see this movie. It made another $7 million. It's at $187 million worldwide. Gareth Edwards' sci-fi film The Creator is closing in on the $100 million mark. The Miyazaki film The Boy and the Heron opened up in Korea to very good numbers. It's now at $72 million worldwide. That opens here in North America in December. I'm really looking forward to seeing it. Back in China, who's the suspect? That's all I know about the film. It's called Who's the Suspect? And it made $6 million. Uh, in uh, another Chinese film, The Volunteers to the War, about the Chinese participation in the Korean War. So it's another flag-waving, tub-thumping, patriotic film. That's the first in the trilogy. It's made $111 million worldwide. I am not sure how much movie money that costs to make. It's a period war film, so it could be expensive. You know, we also have Moscow Mission. That's at $91 million. And uh, there's a minor action film called Death Stranding, which made $2 million. But that's about it for China. If you know how much the volunteers to the war, this big dramatic war movie from Cage Chen, how much it costs to make, please tell us. Yes, you can write to us. Dirt at showbizsandbox.com is our email address. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're also on Twitter. We're, or sorry, X. You know what? Twitter X. X Twitter. I don't know. Uh, at Showbiz Sandbox is our handle on that particular social media platform. We're on Facebook too. Facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox. That's where you can like our page. <laughs> Right below the volunteers, I missed the one other Chinese film. It's called World's Greatest Dad. And it's about a, a dad whose son falls into a coma for some reason. And the dad pens a suicide note, presumably from the son. So now he's claiming the son attempted suicide, but didn't make it. And then it spirals out of control and becomes this big, huge thing. And I'm like, wow, that sounds a lot like Dear Evan Hansen. <laughs> so um, there you go, Dear Evan Hansen people. You might want to check out this Chinese film and maybe, you know, good luck suing. But anyway, that opened up to $5 million in China. But there is a bizarre story in China before we pull back and look at the worldwide box office or North American box office in China. And we've had a couple of weeks off and back and forth. To clarify, there was a big holiday 
and some big movies opened up that we've talked about. Then the week after that, I commented how everything dropped dramatically, like as if the government said, everybody go back to work, no more movies. I mean, there was a significant drop of all of them, like from 30 million to five, as if they were all completely rejected by people or for some reason, like this is not the time to go see movies. Then the following week while we were off, they jumped back up again to like 20 million, 20, you know, I'm picking a number, 30 million to 5 million, then back up to 20 million. Now this week, all these movies have fallen back down hard again. In the whatever 15 years we've been doing this show and paying attention to the box office, I have never seen a bunch of movies in any market do this. Up, down, up, down, really significantly without any understanding of like some big holiday or something. I've never seen it, period, but I have no idea what is going on there. It's completely puzzling to me. Uh, Normally, if a movie drops hard, that means people reject it and it's not going to go back and be big again the following week. It's utterly unprecedented. I've never seen anything like it. So if you're going to call us and tell us about the volunteers and how much it costs to make, if you have any idea what was going on in China, I would love to know because it it has absolutely puzzled the heck out of me. I've been pouring over the, the numbers, seeing if I can find a story about it. No idea what's going on there. Was there another holiday? I just have no idea. Oh, and it's nice to see uh, Henry Selleck's Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas, a classic holiday film reissued in theaters. It's just about to pass the $100 million mark. So never a big success when it first came out, but it's become a perennial and a very valuable property for Disney. And uh, Henry Selleck did a great job directing Tim Burton's vision. Uh, It's always been called Tim Burton's The Nightmare, but People forget that he didn't direct it. It's Henry Selleck, who also made Coraline and some other great, great films. So love to give him full credit. So that was my confusion about China. Now, Sperling, you have a point to make about North American box office. Yes, it is down a whopping, what is it, down 15%? 14%, yeah. But yeah, 15 to 20% from 2019, which was uh, the, one of the biggest years of all time. Yeah, so, but no, this is my point. I, you know, everybody always compares it to 2019 and just about everybody in, in the industry now hates that. Instead, they love the, the, the three-year average, 2017, 2018, 2019, because of course you had that big Avengers film in 2019 and in 2018. There's always a big film, but yes, it's good to average it out and not compare it to one year, especially when it was the biggest year all time worldwide. So yeah, right. so yeah. a three-year average is a good year running average and ignore the pandemic. That makes perfect sense. Right. And so in that three-year running average, they had 143 wide releases. Those are technically seen as movies that open, open, not just get to, but open on 2,000 screens. 2,000 is the new wide release. 2,000, not 1,000. That's still in my childhood brain. 1,000 is not a wide release anymore. Right. Correct. It isn't. Bizarre. So that's the average over those three years that there were roughly 143 movies. How many movies are scheduled to be released in North America this year, including the end of the year? 124. So you're, you're, you have a 14% drop in the number of films and you have a 15 huh. to 20% drop in box office. Start doing the math, huh. people. <laughs> right. And Thanks to, uh, well, we're going to get to the strike in a few minutes, but yeah, and thanks to the studios and their knuckleheadedness, uh, we're going to have this problem throughout the rest of the year and next year on box office. Straggling releases, release dates, schedules screwed up, not as many movies as there should be, certainly not a fall television season, and it's all a self-inflicted wound. I mean, look at the auto strike. 
right? The the auto companies said they're out and they're serious. <laughs> you know, our profits are way back up. They sacrificed greatly during the Great Recession. We gave ourselves, the top execs, a big 40% raise. Maybe we should give them a 25% raise. What do you think? Rather than shoot ourselves in the foot and cause long-term damage, let's get this sucker over with. If Hollywood had done that and would do that with the actors, we could get back to work. Anyway, Taylor Swift had an amazing week, not just at the box office. She also had a great week on the charts, or two weeks. Her reissue of her album, 1989, Taylor's version, of course, debuted at number one. And a song called Cruel Summer that she was really pushing for, like, getting it to number one. It finally happened. It went to number one. I think it's been number one for two weeks now. So that means she has had 10 number one hits. And, and this album, of course, will now supplant the earlier version of 1989 that she famously did not buy the rights to, the masters to, a complicated story. Nonetheless, she doesn't own the rights, so she re-recorded all those albums and said, hey, fans, listen to these newer versions. Now, when she puts them out, that also increases the uh, appreciation of the older versions, so they get listened to, but the new versions ultimately dominate. And all the record labels are paying attention. They have now begun adding contract language to say you cannot re-record an album that you've recorded for us for like 20 years or 30 years or 40 years or ever <laughs> yeah they're just like we do not want this to ever happen again right because should they really it, you know all, mm -hmm. there was an article in the new york times about how uh the value of her older songs have, have dropped even though they're being listened to more like the how they're no longer as valuable as they were when they were first purchased by scooter braun yeah, um, it's an amazing, but I don't think they really should worry about it too much because this is virtually, it's not unprecedented. People re-record their hits for a new label. You would see in the 60s and 70s crappy new compilations from Little Richard or whatever who would re-record their hits for some new label. Roy Orbison did it, a really good version for the Virgin record label, um, but... You know, they people wanted the original versions, you know, but they would just shove these versions out into stores and you'd buy it, not realizing it was a re-recorded version and it would sound fine. So it's happened before. So I guess there's a, it's a smart move, but uh, it will never happen to the way it's happened to Taylor. That's This is so unusual and unprecedented. Uh, it, it would take 50 years before we saw anything like that to happen again. And I guess with this new language, it won't. She's certainly one of the big acts of all time. In fact, she now has 10 number one hits on the Hot 100, the Billboard chart, the Hot 100, which only dates back to 1958 and Ricky Nelson's number one hit, Poor Little Fool. That was the first number one hit on the Hot 100 from Billboard. But that's going now uh, almost 70 years. So it's a long history. Only 11 acts in all of that history, those 70 years, have had 10 or more number one hits. And Taylor is one of them. The Beatles is at number one with 20, Mariah Carey with 19, and then Rihanna, Drake, Michael Jackson, Madonna, The Supremes, Whitney, Janet Jackson, Taylor Swift, and Stevie Wonder. That's pretty rarefied uh, territory. But I thought, what about the people who came before 1958? Sinatra had 10 over the various major charts beginning in the 30s and ending with something stupid with his daughter Nancy. Diana Ross had six solo number ones, so you could count her as having 18 in all. Paul McCartney had nine solo number ones, so maybe he has 29 in all, though maybe you only want to count the ones he sang on. Bing Crosby? He had 10 number one hits by 1932. He had 40 number one hits, and I only counted White Christmas once. So there you go. 
Um, I just thought that was very interesting. That's what an amazing thing Taylor is doing. Um, now, we've got Hocus Pocus and Nightmare Before Christmas, and we get all these reissues of Hollywood movies like Casablanca and Jaws and Home Alone and Back to the Future, all this stuff. Uh, how important are these little movies to the studio, uh, to the exhibitors? Do they love them? Do they like them? Or are they like, yeah, it's fine? You know, it depends. Some of them, uh, they do certain uh, promotions around them, and they do incredibly well. Uh, like Showcase Cinemas in the UK is doing a whole like spooktacular series where they're doing, you know, all these, uh, you know, Ghostbusters and Casper and, and, and you know, the, the original Exorcist. So in that regard, they like them. Uh, but they are, there is no substitute for a, a big blockbuster, brand new blockbuster. That's for sure. Right. But I mean, we all know about how there are all these parts of the day where seats are empty. Uh, in the middle of the week or whatever, if you can get people to come out for Casablanca, you know, that's better than empty seats, right? I mean, it's not going to take away from the big blockbuster. It's all about filling in the gaps. Nobody's saying, hey, let's put, you know, Back to the Future on July 4th weekend. Right. And to be honest with you, even if, let's say, uh, Casablanca is on Max, right? Because, of course, Warner Brothers now owns it. Uh, I would say, fine, put it in movie theaters too. That way, if I'm a, a film aficionado, I get to go see it on the big screen. And if I can't make it because I have something else to do that day, I can always watch it at home. It's not going to. They're be always valuable. at home. Yeah, it's not right. Be yeah, because you can got you can watch Hocus Pocus and Nightmare on Christmas before Christmas wherever you want. You know, so yes. it's the only people who want that pleasure of going to a theater, and that reminds them, hey, it's fun going to the movies and buying popcorn. And they're going to do more of that in China. They're adding twenty more IMAX screens to the Chinese market, and that's just that one circuit. Oh, real well. Yeah, are they adding more in other parts of the country? Uh, uh, there are other. Um, well, I think I'd have to no, go China, and check. I, th- I think this press release would have mentioned if they were opening fifty. It was about. It wasn't about. It was just like we're opening twenty soon in China. We have a new contract. If there were more, I think they would have said more because it, it was came a, from IMAX. So yeah, it was a press release uh, announcing a, a specific deal with a specific exhibitor, and I think there've been a couple right. of those recently in China. In China. Oh, yeah. Well, I wonder how many total are being Some built of them, in China. by the way, are just refurbs. So they're taking an existing IMAX screen and they're doing IMAX with laser, which is a much brighter uh, solution. That's okay. That counts, right? They're upgrading. Correct. Well, that's cool. I wish Hollywood upgrade and get a deal done with the actors. Talks are continuing. Everybody's like making progress. But then the actors, people are like, look, don't, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic, but we still have major sticking points. Uh, but while we were gone over these two weeks, the big actors stepped in. They swooped in to help. I thought it was kind of embarrassing. Did they, did they really swoop in to help? They did try to help, and I thought it was a little embarrassing. George Clooney gets the, you know, because he's a big, such a big name, but it wasn't just him. It was him and Emma Stone, Ben Affleck, Tyler Perry, Scarlett Johansson. All these stars sort of somehow banded together and came to sag after and made this public offer to say, let's do a couple things. Let's end the cap on contributions to benefits. Right now, you only have to pay in, just like Social Security. You only have to pay into Social Security for the first $130,000 that you make. After that, you don't get taxed and have to put that money to social security you should be and i'd love to lift the cap so would bernie sanders they're saying look lift that cap you know let's do that and that would help we say they estimated that would generate about 50 million dollars a year and maybe that could help bridge the gap between you and the studios and we get all this nonsense done and get back to work 
There's two problems with this. Number one, that's not what they're striking for. <laughs> it's not about- I was going to say, when, when they suggested that, I was like, okay, but you do know that that's not the issue, right? Right. It's what the studios pay and, and, the, and, the, and the fees that the actors pay to SAG-AFTRA cannot legally be used for the pension and health plans. They're not allowed to. And their dues are pretty robust right now. We're getting good dues, they say. So that's not the issue. Um, also, the trades looked at the number that they offered and said, oh, this would, if we did this, if we lifted that cap, that would mean about an extra $50 million a year. And they're like, I don't think so. When you look at how much they make and what, you know, it just, the math just not add up. They, they say more like, uh, not even close. So... Uh, <laughs> Uh, whatever they offered, I would say, take them up on it. Say, sure, great, let's do that because we can always use more dues. We, we can surely support something positive like the actor's retirement home or something. There must be something they can do with that would be positive. The other thing the actors suggested in their big rescue, coming to the rescue was, all right, look, we got to do something about the payment schedule. The pe people on the bottom of the call sheet, when you have a call sheet for actors and you know the number one is George Clooney, at the bottom is Michael Giltz, the guy playing second from the right guy who says, yes, you know, that guy, they should get paid first rather than last. And the top of the call sheet should be paid last, not first, when it comes to residuals. And I immediately thought, doesn't everybody get paid the same time on residuals? What are you talking about? And I was, in my innocence, correct. Act, these actors were apparently confusing residuals with profit participation. Everyone gets residuals at the same time. Profit participation is different, and it does waterfall down, meaning George Clooney gets profit participation first, and then the second-tier actors and third and so forth down. But of course, it's not an issue for the vast majority of actors because they don't get profit participation, I was kidding, nor yeah. does it usually ever come into play for 99% of them, unless you're getting gross. Yeah, I was a little surprised at, at, at the uh, when they started mentioning this. I thought, did they talk to their agents first? Because they really should, or even their managers. It they could at least just bizarre. talk to them. Yeah, I mean, th th none of this made any sense at all. And I Fran mean, Drescher was like, Fran Drescher was like, well, thank you so much. That's great that you're, you know, wonderful. That's not really, <laughs> we're fighting over what the studios pay us. Not that. And that's not, no, 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 no. <laughs> thank you for helping, but you're not. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was embarrassing, I thought. But, oh, well, they meant well, I By suppose. The way, but really strange you said you wanted to see the studios upgrade you know i just got a call from donna langley she says we're trying to upgrade we're trying to upgrade to like not need actors at all with our ai <laughs> that's right that's one of the major sticking points ai well you know i've actually heard over the past 48 hours that the uh strike was almost over okay that a deal is, is it's a done deal that they're just you know putting dot and i's and crossing t's and uh i've also heard that uh they're incredibly far apart and there's no deal coming <laughs> so it's like pick your poison people like people who are in the know are like even they're far apart on what they're where they're saying this is at well they've been talking actively over the weekend so it's all a good sign so let's hope for uh, ai is a sticking point the studios still i think they've reduced their demand they now say if we get your consent which they mean like the second you appear on set and you're a nobody you sign and they have your image forever we'll only use it for the franchise that you made that movie for so if your image is scanned and you're in a romantic comedy that's never a sequel that's it if you're in a Star Wars movie, they can use your image over and over and over in all, I suppose the franchise would be any show or movie connected to it or just that particular, you know. So they've slightly reduced their demand, but the actors still aren't happy. And the studios just want to play a flat fee. 
Like whatever rights we get, that's it. You never get, and the, and the actor's like, we want to get paid every time. You're using our scan. And the other big argument is subscriber fee. The streamers are angry because they say a flat rate per subscriber worldwide doesn't reflect the different rates around the world. Besides, we're losing money in some territories. I say, well, okay, fine. Why not do a rate based on the subscriber price in every country? How hard is that? You know? Well, and, and it was specifically the the uh, studios who said, oh, we don't like this whole 2% of revenue thing. Well, it's like, okay, well, at least revenue kind of speaks to like the difference in subscribers you got. Right. So, I mean, you know, all right. So 59 cents in North America, 30 cents in France, five cents in India or whatever, you know, it doesn't, it's a percentage of the subscriber fee worldwide. It's, you know, so if you keep lowering the prices, we get less money. If you raise the prices, we get more money. Uh, and of course, the movie schedule is being screwed over. Deadpool three has been pushed back. Mission Impossible. Wait, Deadpool three? When did that get pushed back? Because as of Saturday, it wasn't pushed back. Was it pushed back on Monday? I didn't check Monday. It will not make its May twenty twenty four release date. I, I thought that happened earlier, not not yesterday, but I don't remember anymore. Well, SpongeBob SquarePants, A Quiet Place, Mission Impossible, all sorts of stuff is getting moved around. Well, Mission Impossible. They not only said we're taking it out of twenty twenty four. But by the way, we're also changing the name. We're not going to call it uh, Dead Reckoning Part 2 since Dead, Re- Dead Reckoning Part 1 didn't do that well. So I thought that was interesting. As far as Deadpool, I don't think they've officially postponed it. I think that what the reality well, I got it is, in the trades. I got it in the yeah, trades. No, no, I didn't but make I, it up. I, I don't think Disney has officially postponed it, but I think everybody knows, hey, you were in the middle of making that movie during when the strike happened. You were in the middle of production. There's no way you're making that date. So you may not have officially postponed it, but let us do it for you. It's postponed. There's no way you're making that date. All right. Well, I don't think the trades do that very much. It was reported as delayed. It wasn't a hypothetical. So, you know, I wouldn't have included it. That Somebody said, well, it looks like they won't be able to. It was like, no, it was delayed. It was officially delayed. It yeah, still says May 3rd, 2024 on IMDb. Yeah. So there because that that wasn't officially in their press release when All they right. when they announced it. Well, I I put but it everybody's in there like, somebody why, said why, it. Yeah, and everybody's like, "Why wouldn't you include Deadpool when we all know you're going to have to include Deadpool?" And by the yeah. way, the Jonathan Majors film, that was just taken off the Well, well that's a different issue. Magazine he's on, tri- he's on trial for for abuse, so that's a yeah, very different so issue. It's got nothing to do with the strike. Not a thing. No. No. Although he is. But the ad rates do have something to do with the strike, don't they? Explain. Yeah. So, you know, when you don't have new programs, uh, you don't have a lot of eyeballs watching the new shows, the new scripted shows. Sure, you have some some eyeballs watching uh, those reality shows like Big Brother and, and The Voice. But well, those are some of the, the biggest shows rates. on television. The, those yeah, are some so, of the well, biggest shows on TV. The Voice. Yeah, the ad rates are down forty percent over last year. Which means if you're tracking revenue, right, and you're going, well, okay, is it just that show? Well, no, it's all of them. So reruns of Young Sheldon right now are getting fifty thousand dollars for a thirty second spot. Last year, new episodes got one hundred and sixty five thousand dollars for a thirty second spot. Shark Tank ad rates are down 30 and by the way the bachelor in paradise down 35 percent the masked singer and the simpsons they're down 50 percent year over year so all of the ad rates are down nbc in 
in its entirety is down 9%. And by the way, they have football on Sunday night, and that's one of the biggest draws. I think it's like the number one show each year now. In uh, So they actually have a pretty good primetime NFL package. And it's just one night. The, yeah. Yeah, and it's just one night. That's the problem. Yeah. So that's basically, if you want to know why like Donna Langley and, and uh, Bob Iger and uh, all those executives are headed on over to meet with SAG-AFTRA, this would be why, because they're really <laughs> going to take a hit in their ad rates. Well, it's a big deal, isn't it? Hopefully, the, hopefully by the time this show comes out, it will be outdated and a strike will be over. Uh, you know what? Since we are saying it and reporting on it, it will probably be done by the time we're finished recording. Exactly. Our luck. Yeah. But you said something was, um, well, the words you used, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think you said it was a big deal, which means I, it must mm-hmm. be time for Big Deal or Big Whoop, our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines and entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Our first story. And now stop me if you've heard this one before. Anthropic. Okay, a, a weird name, I know. It is an AI company that launched a chatbot named Claude. Hi, Claude. Because all chatbots, yeah, they all need human Adorable names. Adorable names. Yeah, Siri, and of course, I'm going to say all of them and turn everybody's devices on. Um, <laughs> Amazon, by the way, just invested $4 billion in the company and plans to disperse the technology throughout the company's offerings. Google was already on board, by the way. Okay, so it's... The hot new kid on the block. Everybody wants a piece of Claude. And like other chatbots, well, Claude and Anthropic are being sued. In this case, it's music publishers that are heading to court. They say Anthropic was trained on their copyrighted songs. They say it rips off those songs, uses barely disguised lyrics from classic songs, and passes them off as its own. I say prove it. I'm going to ask it to write a song about the death of Buddy Holly. And, oh, it handed me a song called Day the music died, chock full of lyrics from the classic tune, American Pie. Okay, yeah, I I can't imagine Don McLean is not amused. Similar infringements occur if you ask it to write a poem in the style of Leonard Skinner. You get a whole bunch of Sweet Home Alabama. Or a story in the style of Louis Armstrong. Hey, guess what? The story talks about how what a wonderful world it is and full of coincidences. And if you do want the lyrics to a song. It will provide them, even though it doesn't have the right to do so. The publishers want tens of millions of dollars, at least. And they also want to see the algorithm. Is this a big deal or a big whoop? Um, I think it's going to be a big deal once somebody wins a lawsuit, everybody's suing. I can't imagine that would fall under fair use. <laughs> you know, you've got a service that says, oh, you want a song about Buddy Holly? Here, I've just clearly ripped off this copyrighted song. How is that conceivably, you know, they can argue to the clouds, the clouds till the cows come home that like, oh, we've transmogrified it. And and yes, we learned from your material, but we've turned it into something entirely different. You couldn't possibly claim that it's the same as, oh, it's literally the same. Oh, yeah, I guess that's a problem. (laughs) And by the way, for those of you who... mm -hmm who will write in and say, well, uh, Joe Biden, the president of the United States, he just uh, he signed this uh, executive order. It has nothing to do with this kind of AI. 
It is strictly well, it's, about it's, the AI. They're, they're looking at national security and 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 things, and yeah. certainly the markets. But yes, it's important. It's all part of the same struggle over dealing with AI and the ramifications. Some people built AI by stealing other people's work. They say, no, we didn't steal it. It was fair use. It'll have to be decided in court. There's a meeting in the UK from companies and co- governments to work on AI, and the US is trying to get ahead of the game and talk about national security and make sure you show us how it's safe, how you show us how it's not going to be used in cases where it, it's prejudicial and may discriminate against people because we've seen AI uh, reflect the biases of their programmers and the data put into it. So it's all the same battle. And by the way, while we're on tech companies, you know, Facebook uh, and Twitter are thinking of charging a subscription uh, so that you, you don't have to watch or, or, or view any ads on their platforms, to which I say they're totally copying us. We don't have any ads, and we don't even charge you a subscription. We could, have a, we could have a tip jar. I, we should have a tip jar, but that's beyond you. Oh, well. <laughs> Sperling's got too much money. Exactly. I would have no place to put it. Besides, we're just in the midst of a new theater season. But since most regional theaters have their entire year mapped out, we can cover one of Michael's favorite bits of data. I know you love this story. I every do, year I we do. do this story. It feels like every month, but uh, it must be every year. Uh, these are th- these these regional shows, the shows and playwrights that are being produced the most. Okay, that's what Michael likes to talk about. These are the regional theaters mounting their own shows, as opposed to Broadway shows that are, of course, on Broadway. These are touring or no. local theaters putting on a <laughs> no, classic. No, 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 you, no, you messed that up. You messed that up. As opposed to tours of Broadway shows coming around the country. For example, I'm in Birmingham, Alabama. The Broadway tour of To Kill a Mockingbird is coming to town, but that's not an example of a regional show. That's a Broadway touring production. So we're talking about shows right. being done in regions. Yes. Right, but it's still a regional well, I no. guess that's a national you, you, tour, though, right? Yeah. You're seeing a national tour. Yeah, there Right, are, they're not mounting their own production of To Kill a Mockingbird. Right. This is the Broadway production starring, in this case, Richard Thomas, John Boy, is touring with To Kill a Mockingbird, and that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about Wicked touring the country. We're talking about shows being mounted by theaters regionally. Okay. So, well, at the top of that list of most popular shows, what do you think it is? It is I don't know. a show called called What the Constitution Means to Me by Heidi Schreck. Remember this show? It was, you know, done I back did. It in- was on Broadway, and, it, you know, you only need two people. So, you know, it's yeah. an easy-to-mount show. Yeah. Well, Tony and Pulitzer-nominated show debuted on Broadway in 2019, and this 2023-2024 season, it is being mounted in 16 different productions. Right behind it is Clyde's by Pulitzer Prize winner Lynn Nottage, who, I mean— How many productions does she have going at the same time? The comedy POTUS by Selena Fillinger and the Lehman Trilogy. Great play adapted by Ben Power. The most popular playwrights, of course, as I just said, Lynn Nottage, Heidi Schreck and Ken Ludwig. Big deal or big whoop? Uh, well, it's a big deal. It's cool to see when you look at the full list. We have a link in our show notes. There are lots of women. Uh, lots of easy to mount shows with strong roles for women. Uh, a lot of people of color. You've got Fat Ham. Uh, you've got the musical Beautiful about Carol King. You've got the Thanksgiving play by Larissa Fasthorse. But you've also got stuff like the Rocky Horror Show, Cabaret, Dial M for Murder. That one surprises me. And I was like, where's August Wilson? But you know what? He's the fourth most produced playwright, but he has so many great shows that there's not one show that dominates right now. So that's why none of his shows broke into the top. 
top 10 because a lot of them get mounted. Uh, Ken Ludwig, he's the guy who wrote Lend Me a Tenor, which is a very popular regional show. Also, he did a Sherlock Holmes play called Baskerville and so on. Shakespeare is not included because he is so predominant. But Tennessee Williams, Edward Albee, they were all eligible. Uh, Shakespeare's the only person they will not include. So they would have had, they must have had less than eight productions of Tennessee Williams, Edward Albee, and so on around the country. These are at regional theaters. They do not include high schools and grade schools and other stuff. That comes in a different list. What about community theater? So like the ones where it's like, oh, we did four, we did a run of four shows over the weekend. No, because they're not, they're like, they're at a a lower level where they don't count that. So like my local really small community theater did Waiting for Godot, God help them. Uh, They did Boy, an extremely challenging uh, off-Broadway show. I was like, I do not want to see a regional, uh, you know, a local production of that. But then they did like the radio musical comedy mystery of 1933 or something like that. Some light comedy that you could see them tackling and doing a good job with and then they would do of course a christmas carol every year uh so stuff like that at the really local tiny level doesn't count regional theaters are bigger with audiences and subscriptions i think it's a certain size of theater i'm not sure what the dividing line is yeah and you know it costs money to do that like when you're even a community theater you have to pay not only to rent the theater but you have to sometimes uh well you have to license those those shows. In fact, uh, when I saw Merrily We Roll Along, I noticed in the playbill, one of the things that was licensed was one of the artworks hanging on the wall of the apartment. In, and I thought, how wild is that, that you had to license a painting? Well, sure. Unless it's an original that you make. You can't just grab a famous, you know, they had, if you have a famous poster or whatever, you can't just put it in your show. You got to get, you know, it's like a song. You can't just use a song. You got you to pay for the rights. All right, Fine. I'm, I'm canceling my my Billy Joel retrospective. Apparently, I'm going to have to pay that guy. Uh, now, Netflix. We're about to talk about them. Out on Broadway. Oh. Sorry. Yeah. Well, I, you, what are you in a New York state of mind? Come on. <laughs> that was a Miami state of mind. About as much as I can use without being sued. Uh, <laughs> by the way, if you don't like Netflix, hold on to your hats because we're about to talk about Netflix. Netflix said it absolutely positively was not interested in live sports much like they said they're absolutely what nope what never not gonna do live sports nope not happening oh yeah well they're also not gonna do advertising absolutely no way they're the ones without the ads where we don't have ads until we have ads until that's what we actually want you to to do we want you to have (laughs) ads so we're totally not interested in live sports until we actually are Now, don't get excited if you own a baseball team or a basketball franchise. Netflix isn't really getting into live sports, but it is staging an event that will help promote two of its sports-related TV shows, the Formula One Drive to Survive, that show, and the PGA Series Full Swing. Get it? Full Swing? Because people swing at the golf club, see? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, Netflix is pairing race car drivers with pro golfers in a match play event taking place November 14th in Las Vegas. What could go wrong? Okay, it's, it's, it's called the Netflix Cup. And hey, Formula One racers should be good at driving the ball. And it's smarter than putting golfers behind the wheel of cars hurtling down a track at more than 200 miles per hour. Though I've got to be honest, actually, the ratings for that might be pretty 
pretty darn good, if you ask me. So this must all be taking place during the Las Vegas Grand Prix, which is taking place. And by the way, there's no racetrack. You know what the racetrack is called? It's called the Las Vegas Strip. They're just ripping down the strip. So... Good grief! And by the way, they fit. Have, did you notice they finished the sphere just in time for that? For that, uh, so that they're racing past that big giant sphere dome that U two is performing in. I I I think they wanted to get it done when they as soon as they could. I don't think it was necessarily pegged to that, but yeah. Yes, but I'm a conspiracy theorist, so I have to uh, create a conspiracy. Welcome to America. So, oh, by the way, is this a big deal or a big whoop? Uh, it's a big whoop, of course, and yet. They're dipping their toes into the water, seeing what it's like to stage a live event, and they will learn from it. They've done others before, I believe, and they will, you know, like, oh, this is interesting. And, you know, it's only a big whoop Didn't until they, they finally decide. Blind? They did something they did else a love is, live. Yeah, and it was a horrible disaster. They went, oh, uh, oh, right. oh, we need, yeah, oh, satellites. Yeah, we should well, probably they're, get they're some They're learning, they're learning. That's right, you can't, you never do it before. But so this sounds more like, you know, this sort of, this stunt, like Battle of the Network Stars, where the Brady family would do a tug of war opposite the Waltons, you know? <laughs> so one of those crazy little stunt things, but it's all in good fun. I had a friend, my friend Mike went to the Sphere, saw the U2 show, he may have had a hallucinogenic, but nonetheless, he said it was truly jaw-dropping and amazing. He thought the visuals were out of this world. Uh, the critics were mixed. They were like, it's cool, but it sort of overwhelms, or it was okay, it was fine, but it's not the future of concerts. But for this one venue, the stuff you could see there sounds like it's pretty cool. Sounds very Vegasy. I don't think you're going to see 50 of them all over the world the way they touted. They think they're going to do them everywhere. I don't know about that, but it seems to work perfectly for Vegas. And after about 50 years, they'll probably start making their money back. <laughs> Two billion dollars it costs. Good yeah, grief. Yeah. Well, that sounds like uh, a lot of insidery information, though. Kind of like what we covered during Inside Baseball. Inside Baseball is where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business, and more importantly, how they affect you. Here's how this affects you. You're going to need more money because mm. Michael. Let me ask you: Are you watching the World Series? Nope. Yeah, neither is anyone else, actually. That's what happens when you have Texas versus Arizona. Uh, game one was the lowest rated World Series in history. So we know live sports are a dependable draw, but the, that's only in a world where streaming and a million different platforms have splintered audiences like never before. Some people are watching the World Series live, like me. A handful of others are racing through the game on their DVR, like me, for game two. Uh, others are on Netflix enjoying the final season of Sex Education, not like me. And others are on Disney Plus watching Elemental. Ooh, I should like watch me. that. I watched it. And others are on HBO Max binging the sitcom Friends. We'll explain why in a moment. Streaming has changed everything. So let's discuss the latest about Netflix, the surprising resilience of cable, and what the future of all these platforms might be. Netflix... They had their earnings call. They said, you know what? We have 9 million new subscribers worldwide. Last quarter, we added 5.9 million subscribers. Mon Dieu. And I say Mon Dieu or, or, or Sacre Bleu or uh, Gesundheit because 
That's almost 250 million subscribers worldwide, and only, I say only, but 30% of them come from North America. They're obviously batting way above their weight, but that means there's a lot of people, like 180 million that are not in North America. That's a lot of people around the world. That's why they invest in so much entertainment and original programming, not in English. And those subscribers are coming even as they crack down on passwords, not surprisingly, I guess, and raise their prices, right? Yes. So in, especially in the US, they said, you know what? Here's the deal. We have right now between 20 and 30% of the, of new subscribers sign up for the ad rate or the ad tier. And what we really need is we need people to sign up for this ad tier because we need scale. So what we'll do is we will increase our non-ad rate by $7. So I think they're, they're going up like, you know, what is it? The basic tier is $16. Like, the, the, like if you don't get HD and 4K and all that, you get, it's $16. The, I think it's now up to $20 per month. I don't think that was a $7 raise. I don't think they went up $7. It's $7 for the ad tier. Oh, okay. I thought they raised it. So what is it now? It's like $20, I thought. Well, I pay like $16. If you have a family pack where you can have like four or five platforms going at once, that's the maximum amount. It's, it's like $20 plus. Then there's one like me where you get two or three streams at once and then you pay $16. Then if you want just the ad tier, it's pretty inexpensive and they find they make more money off the ad tier. So they want to, I don't think they're necessarily going to keep trying to shove everybody into the ad tier, they could just get rid of the top tier. I think they're just saying, how much money are people willing to pay without? You know, they'll find that sweet spot where people say, yeah, you know, I'm not happy anymore. <laughs> and they'll stop there. But right now they're finding they can keep increasing the prices, keep people who are on the upper tiers and new subscribers are more and more choosing the ad tier. So that means they're making more money off of them. They're now up to 50%. So last quarter, 20 to 30%. Now they raise prices. Now they're up to 50%. So not bad. They've figured that out. You're absolutely right. But of course, you know, Ted Sarandos has been running around going, don't worry, we're going to show you all the data. No problem. Do you know why that is? Because if I'm an advertiser, I don't trust you. So I'm going to have a third party come in there and do an audit myself. And that's exactly why all of a sudden Ted Sarandos is like, we'll tell you everything. They haven't yet. They haven't yet. Yes, they say they it's may coming, tell advertisers. They may tell advertisers, but it doesn't mean they have to tell us. Correct. So we'll have to see if we get any more info. Um, but we know Netflix is doing well, and everybody wants to be Netflix. Uh, we know Disney played hardball with Comcast. They had a big battle royale. No, it was charters. It, it, it was I beg, charter, I beg your pardon, charter. They had a big battle royale. Uh, charters dominates, of course, in California and some other states. And uh, they, w what was happening? What sporting events were? Oh, the, the U.S. Open was on. The tennis the was US on. Open, yeah. The start of the college football season and mm -hmm. the start of the NFL season. And so they went, oh, yeah, no, now's the time to pull a blackout. And Charter, which was already losing over 200,000 subscribers each quarter, lost during the qu quarter 327,000. So roughly about 100,000 subscribers they lost due to Disney's this dispute. Blackout. Yeah. yeah. They then gave out $63 million worth of what they called Disney credits, but then they saved $61 million by not paying Disney for programming for two weeks. So they're like, <laughs> yeah, it cost us $2 million. And, and they gained 
all of these concessions from Disney. They're not going to be paying as much for programming moving forward because they said we're not carrying your your ESPN Texas seven. Long, yeah. <laughs> uh, and all of these channels they got to cut. And they said, oh, by the way, if they subscribe to us as Spectrum, they get Disney Plus or they'll they'll get Disney Plus at a, at a cut rate and we'll get a wholesale rate for that. So that's pretty much and that's a, uh, a win for everybody, right? You want to keep the cable money coming in. Disney should realize this is not, they're not the enemy. They're still making a lot of money off cable, off the bundles, like the, these traditional bundles. So they should want them to survive as long as possible as they try to transition to having everybody subscribe just to them alone. Right. But if you're a, a studio or a television network or a cable channel and you're like i'm gonna i'll show comcast i'm gonna go over to them i'm gonna pull my content and they'll just have to pay me well actually no they won't they'll just be like all right i guess we don't have fox news now <laughs> it's like you and know suddenly you don't have that five dollars per subscriber fee that you get for fox news exactly that's why only two weeks disney lost 61 million dollars from charter you do wow. the math on that so you think that means there will be less uh, grandstanding, less, uh, less uh, fights and strikes, or however you want to term these blackouts? Right. There's going to be a whole lot of deal-making going on. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of, uh, of Charter uh, and some other cable providers, Comcast, for example, uh, is a, one of the studios that may go toe-to-toe with them. They own 33% of Hulu. We are recording our show on a Tuesday because Sperling got back late from New York on Monday. And as of Wednesday, November 1st, it's likely either Comcast will force Disney to buy its stake or Disney will force Comcast to sell. It's going to happen. Now, the value of Hulu will be based on its market position as of this September. So the big debate now is what is Hulu worth overall? Uh, Now, they've both agreed. There's a floor. It will be worth at least $27.5 billion. And if that was the final value, Disney would owe Comcast about $9 billion. Comcast says, oh, come on. It's worth a lot more than that now. It's got to be worth $32, $36 billion. At the upper end, Disney would owe them $12 billion. So it's either $9 billion or $12 billion. Or are they going to cut it in between and make it $10.5 billion? Is that where we're going to end up after weeks of haggling and lots of lawyers' fees? Uh, but what's, what, what's $3 billion between friends? Well, this is the problem that Disney has, and this is why everybody's been talking, oh, Disney's in trouble. Why'd Bob Iger come back? He's in trouble. He never should have come back. Well, here's the problem. You see, before he left the first time, he went out with his checkbook and wrote a check for 70-some-odd billion dollars to buy Fox. And now he's going to have to write another check to buy the rest of Hulu. Well, all of that is leverage. That's all loans that he's going to have to pay back. That is why he's in trouble. That is why Disney is kind of suffering right now. Have they extended the copyright yet, or is making it go into the public domain in 2024? I have no idea. I can't remember when. It, I mean, I've lost track because they've delayed it so it's, many times. It's 2024 right now, but I am I, assuming that they'll try to do something in Congress. So they'll have that to worry about as well. Besides, is Hulu worth the same once you take into account all the other companies that provide programming have finally pulled out? None of them are going to stay there. It's going to be just the content that Disney owns when all is said and done, right? It's just going right. to be ABC and, that's why and whatever like, they own. Right. You're basically saying, well, I'm buying basically an empty vessel. I'm buying a brand is what I'm Yeah, I don't understand why it's worth $28 billion, (laughs) frankly. But 
when you want to look at what the future is for all these streaming channels, people, well, if only we could bundle them together and make them available for one rate and everybody could just find them. It's like, <laughs> you know, you're like, yeah, it's called cable. And the rather unexpected joint venture of Hulu is maybe the past and the future of what apps should do. Uh, here's a little history. At various points, Hulu allowed people to watch many network shows the next day after they aired on the network. This is when they all said, oh my God, what's happening with all this on-demand and streaming stuff? And they they got together weirdly. I always thought it was a little strange that these different networks could partner together, but they created this platform and you could go on there. And if you missed a show and didn't have a DVR, didn't know how to work it, you could watch something the next day with ads. You know, there'd be little quick ads, but not as many as if you watched it regularly. And they also offered content from other cable channels and original programming. At one point or another, Hulu has offered content from ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, the CW, the BBC, Showtime, and cable channels like all the Disney channels, HBO, A&E, The Big Ten, Bravo, E, Fox Sports, PBS, FX, Oxygen, RT America, which is like, yes, but Sundance, Sci-Fi, USA, stuff from India like Star Indian Hot Star, anime content from Naruto and Crunchyroll like One Piece, output deals with studios like Sony, IFC, Magnolia, DreamWorks, and on and on and on record labels started putting on video clips and concerts hulu really was a one-stop shop for all this content it was never all on at the same time but it was one platform that all these competing networks allowed all their content to be shown on there and they all benefited from it or they wouldn't have done it and in variety jason keelar who was of course once the head of hulu says hey hulu was great is Hulu the future of streaming apps? He says, for God's sakes, it, it, it can't just be a bundle of apps where like you go to Apple TV and you go, you go to the ESPN app and you go to the YouTube TV app and you go to the uh, HBO Max app. He says, no, it should be some new interface uniquely designed that awesomely allows people to discover content the way they did with cable. It's all going to be on demand mostly or a lot of it, but it should be some very great new thing. But if everybody could cooperate on Hulu, why can't they do it again? Because unless you're Disney and Netflix, you know, all these tiny little apps and streamers cannot survive on their own. And he says, maybe that's the future. Do you think he's got a, a, an idea? Is it possible? Yeah, maybe. I mean, look, obviously things are, uh, you well, know, we, it, it, it's How many apps do you subscribe to? And do you want to subscribe to 50 of them? Because no. if you don't have your cable channel, yeah, you know. So, you know, I already subscribed to too many and I've got like seven. You know, so how are there's 20 or 30 or 50 or 100 of these apps now with streaming content? Maybe if they got together and for one decent price and you would benefit based on how many people watched your stuff or the ads on it, maybe a clearinghouse could actually work. I thought, I thought Hulu was bizarre from day one. I thought it was weird that these networks could cooperate in this way. Never mind the antitrust issues, but I just thought it was weird they would do it. But now you see Peacock and 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 all the other you know the secondary tier level ones, and then after them you fall off a cliff. There's like a hundred apps. How can they all survive on their own? You know, they're either going to disappear completely or they're going to have to band together. Well, everybody said that this you know this is not uh, 
the end point. This isn't shocking. Everybody said, look, there's going to be consolidation. And there's usually, just like in cars and telephone companies, there's usually, you know, it, it gets consolidated down to two or well, three. But, no, but Hulu is not consolidating. It's just a clearinghouse where all these different apps can survive financially. Well, BBC, true, yeah. yeah, it's not about consolidating, having everybody bought up by two companies. And so you, it's either Netflix or Disney Plus. It's not about deciding whether Paramount Plus or Peacock will survive. It's saying, could Peacock and Paramount Plus and 100 other channels band together in Hulu and all of them benefit from having a one-stop shopping where they are still competing with each other but and they benefit individually based on their individual success, but it's accessible via a really well-designed app interface that allows them all to flourish as best they can they can. And so then you don't have to subscribe to 30 different apps. You can just go to Hulu as well as Netflix and Disney and whatever you know else is out there. I don't know. And of course, YouTube TV or whatever your streamer is for your bundle for the networks and stuff, you know, rather than 50, you know, you, there's only going to be five or 10, right? Yeah. 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 Well, you add up next week, you tell us how many apps you subscribe to. <laughs> uh, two? You probably don't even remember. Two? Two. Yeah. Two, too many. Yeah, too, too oh, many. too, too many. Yes. Well, it's the death of cable. Not yet. Not if not if Charter has anything to say about it. But it is the death of actor Matthew Perry. He died at 54. He is, of course, famous as one of the cast members of Friends and later famous for publicly discussing his addictions. Uh, ironic early break, a three episode arc on the sitcom Growing Pains, where his character died after a drunk driving accident. He was a five-time Emmy nominee, but it wasn't for just Friends. He also got nominated for the drama The West Wing. He had an arc on there and a nomination for the TV movie The Ron Clark Story. So he showed his range, uh, you know. Uh, he never had the success of Friends. That whole cast had significant success after the show in one form, certainly creatively and often commercially. Jennifer Aniston is on the morning show. They've all had enjoyed success. It's a great ensemble where they all really succeeded. But when that show was on the air, you ask me, I'm saying time and again that he was the one who was going to really make it. He was the one I was convinced would have the biggest, best career after the show. And he didn't, presumably because of his addictions, despite Correct. the success he had here and there. So uh, that's a shame. Of all the stuff, I have to say, the creators of the show put out a statement and I thought it was a little poignant. They, they, they named their statement after the way they named their episodes, and they called their statement the one where our hearts are broken. I was like, oh, God. That, that really was like, oh. <laughs> Any thoughts on Matthew? No, I mean, I, I met him a couple times. He was always very cordial and very nice. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I, I think you're right. It, it was a phenomenon uh, when it was on. Yeah. Uh, and Fame is rare. not fun. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, it's rare for you to, uh, you know, repeat that kind of success. Well, I wasn't expecting him to repeat that success. I was expecting him to be successful at a smaller level, you know, just be creatively and artistically successful. And he mostly made a bunch of crap. And I guess that's yeah. partially due to just, you know, the addiction that doesn't help you have a good career. It, it ain't easy, but God bless him. Uh, Ivan Bart, the one-time president of IMG Models, died at 60. We don't know anything about the world of modeling, uh, but Ivan Bart was a trailblazer. Long before it was on most people's radar, he was pushing for inclusion and diversity in modeling. He successfully and made money by championing models of color, 
older women, plus size women, and men. Some of the names he helped break down barriers for tell the story. Uh, if you know models, you will recognize Alec Weck, Hari Neff, Precious Lee, Zach Maiko, who was sort of a bear kind of guy, and Quana Chasing Horse. He died after a short illness, but the modeling world recognized his voice as a positive one for generations of models and actor models, ranging from Lauren Hutton to Millie Bobby Brown. He was just 60 years old. Now, did you ever listen to the music of Dwight Twilley? I don't think so. Uh, he's a power pop pioneer. You might recognize a song or two. You're a little young, but he died at 72. He's a two-hit wonder. He met his musical partner, Phil Seymour, as a kid when they were teenagers. They both went to see A Hard Day's Night at the movie theater, didn't know each other, and they started talking. And that's how they became friends for life. His debut single as the Dwight Twilley Band with Phil was I'm on Fire, not the Springsteen song. It hit number 16 in 1975. He's off to the races. Then he had endless troubles with record labels and all this crap and stuff with the band split the two guys up. But he had another hit a decade later with Girls, which hit number 16 in 1984. And that was it. But he is a power pop pioneer. And uh, his first five albums or greatest hit set are well worth checking out. Now, our in-house theater film critic, uh, Aaron Rich, sent us the bio, the obit of Robert Brustein. Do you know him, that theater pioneer? He died at 96. Are you familiar with him? Uh, no, I was actually, this was news to me. Uh, you know, all of it, that he died first, that, uh, but also who he was. It was news to him as well. Yes, he was a major player in the world of nonprofit theater. Uh, quote, the basic aim of the commercial theater is to make a profit, he said in, to the New York Times. The basic aim of non-commercial theater in its ideal form is to create the tradition whereby works of art can be known. And those are not compatible aims. Uh, he was an academic, a critic, a playwright, a teacher, an impresario. He started rep companies at Yale and after they fired him, Harvard with controversy dogging him every step of the way. He fought with everyone from Samuel Beckett to critic Frank Rich of the New York Times. And I remember this. He took part in a legendary debate about theater and race with the great playwright August Wilson. I was at Town Hall in New York City in 1997. I was bummed I didn't get to go see that. It was sparked because he was so angry that the Yale rep was shepherding August Wilson's The Piano Lesson to Broadway. And he thought that was not what repertory theater and nonprofit theater is for. And it's like, dude, it's not like they were partnering with Disney to do a musical version of Newsies. They were doing August Wilson's The Piano Lesson, a three-hour searing drama about race that was not exactly commercial fodder. And uh, the collaboration between August Wilson and the Yale Rep, which helped incubate so many of his great works, is one of the great success stories. But I obviously believed in August Wilson and what he said. I also had empathy for Brewstein, and God knows he was uh, consistent from beginning to end. Now, I'll bet you never heard of actor Joanna Merlin. No. I, no, I mean, the, yeah, she, the, all of these, all, like, the, except for Matthew Perry this week, I am, uh, I am negligent in my... Well, you'll know the last one. Joanna Merlin is the last person alive who studied under the great Russian acting coach Michael Chekhov. She died in 92. If you read uh, The Method, that recent book about The Method, which is really great history of theater and The Method, she made her film debut in 1956 in The Ten Commandments. She debuted on Broadway in Beckett near Laurence Olivier. Then she created the role of the eldest daughter in the smash musical Fiddler on the Roof. She was on TV like Naked City 
and the Defenders right up to Homeland and The Good Wife. She also played the dance teacher in the 1980 movie Fame, and for about a decade, she played Judge Lena Petrovsky on Law & Order SVU, one of the biggest hit TV shows of all time. What a career. But wait, she also enjoyed a second career as a major casting director. She cast a number of movies, including the Oscar winner for Best Picture, The Last Emperor, helping to make John Lone and Joan Chen big stars. But her biggest impact was in the theater, where she cast Evita, Hal Prince's On the 20th Century, and many key shows of Stephen Sondheim, including the original Broadway productions of Company, Follies, A Little Night Music, Pacific Overtures, Sweeney Todd, Into the Woods, and wait for it, Merrily We Roll Along. But wait! She's also fought for inclusivity in casting, just like that guy in modeling. She co-founded what became the Alliance for Inclusion in the Arts. And she also launched the Michael Chekhov Association to keep his legacy alive. And she's on the was on the faculty of the grad acting program at the Tisch School of Arts and the author of Auditioning, an actor-friendly guide, which has been in print continuously since 2001. A major teacher, a major author, a major casting director, and she had a pretty damn good acting career. That's kind of cool. If you know radio, you know Dusty Street, the female DJ. She was on KROQ. That was her big impact. One of the major female DJs in radio. She made her legacy at K-Rock, KROQ in LA. When I went to LA, the first thing I did was turn on K-Rock. Got in my rental car and turned on K-Rock because that's what you wanted to listen to in the 80s, early 90s, for sure. I probably heard her even though I didn't know it. So uh, she's very cool. And finally... Richard Roundtree. Richard Roundtree is dead at 81. Richard Roundtree is a bad mother. No. Nope. You can't nope. say that on a family show. <laughs> You're supposed to say, shut your mouth. <laughs> oh, he, God. Why did I do that? Why? He, Why? He starred in the miniseries Roots, appeared in countless shows like Desperate Housewives. His favorite film that he ever made was Once Upon a Time When We Were Colored. You should check it out. But Shaft. Shaft is his legacy, and that's pretty cool. His son once complained about people recognizing him, bothering him all the time for that one movie. And he said, hey, people go all their lives and aren't recognized for anything, so, so shut up. <laughs> He's good-humored, but there you go. Shaft is gone. Wait a second, I thought Shaft... Oh, that's the new Shaft. Okay, never mind. Well, he was in the new Shaft. He was in the new I Shaft know. as well. Yeah. That's when I interviewed him, actually. Oh, very cool. Was he cool? Was he a bad mother... Yes, he was, and he was very, he was very nice, actually. Cool. Him and was, Isaac Hayes, I interviewed for that film. Oh, very cool. Well done. I, we, we're long anyway. I might as well do it. I was going to save it for next week. Actor Joan Evans died at 89. Her career was not very interesting, but her life is a lot of fun. She was born in New York City. Her mom was a journalist and then a publicist at MGM where she befriended Joan Crawford. They became best friends. And her mom and dad, Joan Evans, they became screenwriters. Joan Evans was in fact named for Joan Crawford who was also her godmother. Imagine Joan Crawford as your godmother. She acted on stage and in her film debut, she acted opposite gay actor Farley Granger who I interviewed once and he promptly shot her shot her on the set when a gun went off accidentally and they had to send her to the hospital. It was a really serious accident. It was a Nick Ray film and they were doing reshoots so the movie wasn't damaged, but dear God. And days after turning 18, she and her 26-year-old boyfriend had dinner at Joan Crawford's. Now, her parents had told Joan they're, they want to get married and that's the last thing we want. For God's sakes, talk her out of it. So they came to her house and Joan Crawford says, you know what? You should get married tonight. 
And she calls up a judge, brings him over, and right after midnight, they got married. Her parents were infuriated. Uh, it may have been revenge because they had just written the screenplay for The Star. That was a vehicle for Betty Davis, the arch enemy of Joan Crawford. And Betty Davis would go on to win an Oscar. And she was telling anyone and everyone this movie about a washed up movie star. Uh, she was basing her performance on Joan Crawford. <laughs> so Joan was pissed. So her parents never spoke to Joan Crawford again, but she did. And you know what? At least the marriage lasted. That young couple stayed together for 70 years. He died wow. in January and she just died now in October. So God rest. And you know what? She said, look, every time Joan came over, I'd let her stay at my house. And when she left, I don't know, all my wire hangers. Yeah. She said, I never saw anything. She was only kind to me. I never saw her be abusive to anyone. Uh, so that was her response to Mommy Dearest. But I know, oh, bitch, like, how do we become the obituary show? But come on, that was pretty fun. That <laughs> was. And yeah. you know what? Tune in next week to find out who died. <laughs> we could do a whole show about this. <laughs> I know. Oh, my goodness. Actually, that, that show might be more successful than the one we're doing. But you know what? We'd have to have a tip jar. It would be shaped in a coffin or an urn. It could be a shape of an urn. Oh, my God. You know what? If there was ever a day to tell those kinds of jokes, this would be it, really. This would be it's right. Halloween. Oh, uh, that's but right. You know, that's right. Yeah. But if you don't want to miss a show and find out whether, uh, you know, next week we change our format, why not subscribe to us in iTunes, Google Podcasts, Microsoft Marketplace, Spotify, anywhere they give podcasts away for free or anywhere you get podcasts. That's usually where you can find us. Please do rate and review us in any one of those podcast aggregators that allows you to do so. It helps us out when you do that. Uh, that information, as well as links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode, that can be found on our website, showbizsandbox.com. That is also where you will find those ways to contact us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. Or you can call and leave us a voicemail, 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're also on Twitter. Sorry, X, gosh, I keep forgetting. Uh, Showbiz Sandbox is our handle there. Uh, Facebook, facebook.com slash showbiz sandbox and i can say that because facebook hasn't changed its name to a single letter making us meta. Say formerly meta <laughs> yeah but but the domain is still facebook is still uh, facebook. now the yeah, music yeah. yeah the music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group mgmt we have a website showbizsandbox.com well, well, no, mgmt no, 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 no. has a website no 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 read read more carefully we don't read no read more carefully about the, mgmt Oh, well, I know they have a new single out, Mother Nature, right? Oh, yeah. Well, I think it's coming out. I think they have a whole album that they've worked on. Read um, what I wrote. Read what oh, I wrote. You, you have written something here. Mother Nature is out now, and their new album, Loss of Life, comes out February 23rd. Rolling Stone has a profile of the band and its recent viral success on TikTok. We've got links to the story and the video in our show notes. They can also be found on their website, whoismgmt.com. By the way, children, reading is fundamental. We're using their music. The least we can do is promote them. And we can never have them on the show because they would hear their music and be like, hey, uh, wait a second. <laughs> it's not quite fair use, you know what but they'd that's say? why they'd we... Say, yeah, they'd say, how, how old is this program? 
<laughs> wow. Hold on. I just have to make a call to my lawyers. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we, 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 it's not fair use necessarily, but we don't make any money off the show, even a tip jar. And we do promote them every week. So we, we, we do it in a spirit that we believe can only help them. We're not trying to profit off them in any way. Uh, we would hope they would not mind, but we don't want to ask. Right. Well, uh, and we do at tribute. So there you go. Well, uh, that doesn't count. Now, That's not enough, but nonetheless, yeah. Yeah. Well, Michael Giltz, you have a website, and every week it's something new and exciting. I what should is say, who is MG, MGMT.com? But I was going to say DwightTwilly.com. His music is pretty great. If you love power pop and the Tulsa sound, check it out. Well, you know what? If you can't find any of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry there, why not head on over to MichaelGiltz.com? Some of my work can be found on CelluloidJunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. <laughs> Most friends fade or they don't make the grade. New ones are quickly made perfect as long as they're new. But us old friends, what's to discuss? Old friends, here's to us who's like us. Old friends? Damn few. Don't you know the line? No. (laughs) I forgot you're not gay. (laughs) 